text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. Luke 9, 37 through 50. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they're all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, this morning you would speak to us through your word. God, your word is the only thing that is secure in this world. Uh, your word tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Your truth is rock solid. God, I pray that we would cling to it this morning, that we would find life in you as your word uh, proclaims what you are like who you are in Christ. Uh, Father, just, uh, I pray you would humble us this morning that we might uh, become more like you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's sermon, it's your lucky day, is perfect just for you. You guys have a perfect sermon dished up exactly for you this morning because the sermon addresses one of your biggest problems. And you could maybe even say your biggest problem. And so we're not dealing with ticky-tack things this morning, but the root of the biggest problem we have, and that's your pride. You might say, well, gee, you don't have to get up on my toes right away. First few sentences, 
But the reality is, is we can talk about our pride as though it's one of these sins that everyone has. Therefore, you know, what's the big deal? If everyone struggles with pride and selfishness, what's the big deal? And yet, all the things that we hold most valuable as Christians are harmed by our pride. And so, my prayer is that uh, you lean in to God's Word this morning and ask Him to help reveal the pride in your own heart that uh, we all might be more like Christ and that our faith may flourish. The reason why pride is our greatest enemy is that it attacks the most valuable thing we have And that is our faith in God, our faith in Christ. Without faith, God will never do anything good for us in a saving way. Grace comes through faith. Now, when we talk about faith, which we're going to do a lot this morning, we need to define terms. The world thinks of faith as like a jumping kind of like a leap into the dark. This, you know, I don't know why I believe this, but I just believe this is going to happen. And someone who has that kind of faith, there's kind of a virtue, our world says, in taking a leap into the dark. I don't know if it's going to work out, but I'm just going to do it. Our culture uses that word and calls it faith, but that's not biblical faith. Christian faith is not a leap into the dark but rather it's trusting in God and His Word. It's not leaping, taking a leap into the dark when we trust what our Creator tells us. Christian faith is based off the assurity of God's Word. So, Paul when he describes his life on this earth, says things like this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now listen to this. And the life I now live in the flesh, that's right now, here and now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of the Christian life is lived by faith until we see Him. Until it's sight. Right now, we cling to the promises of God in His Word until Christ comes. That's why in Hebrews 1, faith is described like this. Faith, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. John MacArthur writes, comments on this verse, he says, faith transports God's promises from the future into the present, giving substance to the future reality. It is a substantial confidence that becomes an absolute unshakable conviction. So God speaks to us. God gives us promises. 
And when we cling to those promises by faith, it's as if they're already here. Remember where we've just been in Luke with the transfiguration? Jesus tells them that He's going to come in all of His glory one day. But in order to help them know that that's true, He's transfigured before them. They get to see a glimpse of this future reality in the present. We as Christians believe promises that some of which have not come true yet. Christ, I mean, we have a good track record with God's Word. When Christ was came to this world and was crucified and was risen, over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled. God's Word is always true. But by faith, we believe the promises of God and it gives us confidence in the present. Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 says this. Uh, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. True Christian faith believes God's Word, God's self-revelation about who He is, but also believes that God is good that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. There's a lot of people who believe God exists, but they just think He's boring. There's no reward in seeking God by faith. That's not Christian faith. So, to just kind of simplify this, systematic uh, theologians, what, what they'll do is they'll talk about Christian faith in three realms. Knowledge, assent, and volition. They'll say Christian faith believes right things about how God reveals Himself in His Word. So you have to know the stuff. But knowledge alone is not saving faith. Assent. That when you see God revealed on the pages of Scripture, and you listen to His Word, and His Word convicts you of sin shows you His glory, shows you His mercy, assent makes a person broken in their sinful position, sees the glory of God, sees how they've offended their Creator, and sees Christ and loves Him. Their heart ascends to Him. And finally, Christian faith is not just knowledge and assent, but it leads to action. Christian faith produces fruit progressively throughout your life. As you look at God's Word, you understand God's Word, your heart ascends to it, your life begins to change. You start to live differently. So, when we talk about faith, we have to take evidently eight minutes to at least get a little definition so we're thinking rightly about what the Bible means when it talks about faith because Jesus is going to make an accusation against the generation saying it's a faithless generation. So, uh, as we dive into this text, let me just bring you up to date real quickly on where we've been lately. 
at the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and gives them power to cast out demons, to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal. And they do it, and it's totally effective. So, 12 fallen human beings chosen by Christ go out and do these amazing things. Do you think there's trouble on the horizon? If there's any pride in their hearts, let me tell you, there's trouble on the horizon. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he lets the disciples be a part of that great miracle. Do you think there's trouble on the horizon? There is. Then Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus said, Peter, be careful. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed to you who I am. It's like a warning against Peter's pride. Right after they confess Jesus being the Christ, Jesus tells them that he's going to be turned over uh, to the chief. The chief priests are going to turn him over to the officials and he's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, rise. As Jesus says that, Peter pulls him aside in his pride and says, no, it won't happen that way. (laughs) That's not going to happen. And Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. Knowing that Peter's words of saying he was the Christ was from God the Father, but his words, no, you're not going to be crucified, was from Satan. Right? And then what does Jesus teach? If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Jesus is saying, if you want to be one of my followers, you have to die to your pride, your own selfishness, your own agenda, and submit to God's agenda. And then we get the transfiguration that we just talked about where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. Nine of them are left at the bottom of the mountain. You think there's trouble on the horizon? There is. Peter sees, uh, Peter, James, and John see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as Jesus is transfigured uh, into this glorious state that's showing them what the future is going to be like when they get to see Christ in all of His glory. And then as soon as they see it, Moses and Elijah start to walk away. And what does Peter do? Whoa, 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 whoa. I'll build you all three tents. Let's keep this thing going. It's good that we are here. This is awesome. And then God speaks out of heaven and shuts Peter's prideful mouth and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see, they want the glory of Christ without the cross. Peter just wants to stay in this state, and yet Jesus keeps saying, suffering is on the horizon. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and suffer with me. Then comes glory. So that's where we've been. 
They're coming down from the mountain, and here's what we read. Nine of them are left down. On the next day, the day after the transfiguration, when they had come down from the mountain, a crowd met him, and behold, a man came from the crowd and cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Now, Mark talks about this account. Matthew talks about this account. And as we read all the accounts, we get the full picture of what's going on. So let me just quickly read Mark's account of this. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. You have the nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain arguing with the scribes. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and asked them, and he asked them, Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered them, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Matthew's account gives us a little bit more information. The man cries out and says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for often he falls in the fire and often into the water. So this man's son is possessed by a demon. It would be the worst type of demon possession. Ever since birth, he would have these attacks where there would be a well or water and he would fall towards the water or fall towards the fire. And we've already talked about that when Christ showed up on earth, demonic activity increased like it's never been in human history. Like we've never seen before. Uh, When Christ shows up, we see the demonic activity at its height. And this is one of those times. So, verse 40 tells us in, in Luke 9, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? Here's the problem. Faithlessness and twistedness. It could be translated pervertedness. The human heart takes the truth of God and perverts it on its head. What's great in man's heart, we're going to find, is what God hates. And what God loves, man hates. God loves humility. Man hates humility. God hates pride. Man makes pride a virtue. This is a generation that's twisted and perverted. We're told the reason why they couldn't cast it out here. They're faithless and twisted. This is 
not only true about the generation, but the disciples. In Matthew 17, uh, in, in Matthew's account, it says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So he uses a metaphor saying, even the littlest, smallest faith can do the impossible. He's speaking in metaphor, but their faith wasn't even as big as a mustard seed. What seems to have happened And here's what Mark says. When they had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So you put all this together, and what's the problem? It seems like the disciples got pretty self-confident and proud in their first uh, ministry experience where they cast out all the demons, and they healed everyone, and then they help feed 5,000. And now they're to the point where they don't even need to pray when it comes to doing God's work or casting out the demon in this boy. You see, Jesus said you're faithless, but here's the key. If I asked you what's the opposite of faith, Many of you are going to say doubt, which obviously is true in some sense. But if I asked you what's the opposite of faith in God, often the opposite is faith in self, self-confidence. Self-confidence is pride. Pride kills faith. It's the opposite side of the coin. I don't need God. I can do it. I am great. I am wonderful. They could point back to what they just did, yet they did it. Jesus said, I'll give you authority to do that. Everything they did was by the power of God, and yet the human heart that's twisted and perverted starts to say, I'm great and I'm wonderful and I don't need God. Their faithlessness is demonstrated in their self-confidence and their self-confidence is demonstrated in their prayerlessness. I just read... uh, tweet, and most of you probably aren't on Twitter, but a pastor, Tim Keller, tweeted this, Christians necessarily believe we depend on God for everything. Any Christian should say that's a true statement. We depend on God for everything. A prayerless Christian then is a contradiction in terms. If we're honest, we can say We're like the faithless generation who does so many things in our own strength, in our own pride. What does Jesus say in John 15, 5? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I'm just thinking, Sam, how much do you try to do apart from prayer? Apart from relying on God just in your own arrogance and strength? And then what problems come from that? We're going to see. We live in a culture that says, follow your heart. And Jesus said, this is a crooked and twisted generation. To follow our heart is to follow the opposite, often, of God's Word. Here's what the Bible says about the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. Sometimes we just got to slow down. The heart is deceitful above all things. That's pretty deceitful. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's beyond human comprehension how proud the human heart is. How sick it is. And then he says, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now there's our problem. What hope do we have if God tests the hearts? There better be a heart changer out there. Salvation better have something to do with getting a new heart. And thankfully, this is the promise of the new covenant. I'll take out your heart of stone, I'll put in a heart of flesh. Your life as a Christian will become one that begins to hate your pride and want to kill it. And by the way, before Christ comes, you're going to wake up with pride to kill. It's never mission accomplished, ever If there's any sin remaining in you, there's pride remaining in you. There's self-confidence remaining in you. It's the root of all sin and selfishness in unbelief. That's why I can confidently say this sermon's just for you. No, I'm not spying on you. I just know you're a human being with a heart that's desperately sick that if you're a Christian, a battle's raging, but if the battle's raging, then you need this sermon. You need help in your battle against your pride. Now here's the interesting thing. In verse 51 of Luke 9, we get the second half of the Gospel of Luke. In verse 51, we're told that Jesus set His face towards Jerusalem. Everything before verse 51 in Luke 9 is Jesus' Galilean ministry. And there's a turning point that's going to start next week where Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem and He's going to the cross and He's going to die. And the disciples' hearts, there's, the time is short. And right now, the disciples are not in a good place, are they? So far, their position has made them proud as we're going to see more clearly here. So then, let's continue to read. At the end of verse 41, bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Here once again, we see the compassion of God, the kindness of God of God healing this boy 
giving him back to his father that has suffered under this for so long. But while we are, verse 43 says, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Up to this point, everyone's astonished with Jesus. Even the ones that hate him are marvel and are astonished. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, and here's the key. Everyone's marveling, but for Luke, marveling doesn't mean saving faith. In fact, most of those that marvel at Jesus reject him when it comes to the suffering part of following him. So while they're marveling, Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. And by the way, this is point two in your notes. Uh, Love Christ's majesty seen most clearly in the cross. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. (laughs) What What a way to say, listen up. As everyone's marveling. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, to just give proper credit to the disciples and to everyone in Christ's day, everyone believed that the Messiah was going to be this triumphant king that just comes and wipes out Rome and does all, just makes everything better right then and there with their surrounding enemies. So they have no ability to conceive of the Christ who's going to be delivered up to the authorities, not have power to defeat them, and die. This is too much for them to understand in their brain. And they didn't get it till after the resurrection. They didn't see the promises in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a suffering servant, like Isaiah 53. But he tells them, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And He's delivered ultimately by God. God the Father sent His Son to die. And Christ willingly went. Romans 8.32 says, He, being God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You see, liberal scholars will say Jesus was trying to uh, defeat Rome and start a movement and he failed and ended up getting himself killed. Well, that's not what the Bible says. In fact, way back in Genesis 3 is the first prophecy that there's going to be one that will come and crush the serpent's head. And (laughs) the way God covers Adam and Eve's shame is with with animal skins, a sacrifice. It's prophesied throughout the Old Testament that Christ is going to die. In Isaiah 53.10, in fact, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So the miracle that's happening on the cross is God puts your sin on the cross. And then... God pours out His wrath on Jesus for your sin. 
That's the only way you can be saved, by the way, is if a perfect substitute dies in your place. Otherwise, you will suffer for your own sin. And the way you receive that forgiveness is by faith. Being humbled, saying, I have no righteousness. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. My only hope is in what Christ has done for me. And so Jesus, once again, tells them that He's going to be delivered into their hands and be killed. And then in verse 45 says, but they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. So in the providence of God, maybe it would have been too much at this time for the apostles to understand everything that was happening. They didn't till afterwards. And they were afraid to even ask him about this. Um, And then, right after this, now think of this for a minute. This is a humbling moment. The leader you're following just says, I'm going to die. Second time he said this. What does uh, any human that's alive, what would you expect him to, what? You are? That's too bad. Or, you might say something like that. But right after this, an argument arose among them. All right. Here's the pride of man in the disciples again. And this is point three in your notes. Engage in Christ's power and declare war on your pride and serve him. So here's what happens. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. The Son of God, the Christ, just says, I'm going to die. Oh, okay. Which one of us is the greatest? Now, this, is, this makes sense. We understand this because we're sinful like this. If 12 human beings are sent out to do miracles and heal, and you all come back and you start telling your stories, what are you going to do? Well, I healed a guy that had this. Well, I healed a woman that was like this. Well, who's the greatest? Well, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. Well, now the nine down below are probably wondering what's going on. There's an argument going on. They can't cast out a demon. And so you just see the position the disciples are in. You see them looking at each other, trying to figure out, how great am I? This is what human beings do. We look around, we want to find a bunch of people we're better than so we can feel better. That's what they're doing. They're arguing about who's the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. Now, here's where this illustration falls off for us. In Jesus' day, the most lowly human being there was was a child. They're worthless 
in that culture to do anything. If you're going to serve somebody, you want to serve a king or someone important. Or, And Jesus says, if this child who's in my name, if this child trusts me, he's my representative. It's like it's me. If you want to be great, if you want to be wonderful, be servant of all, even this little child who has no value in the culture. You want to know what an untwisted mind and heart looks like? You want to know what's truly great? You want to know what it looks like to not be perverted, but to have faith and to believe God's Word? Then quit looking around and figuring out who you're better than, but consider other people more important than yourself. Become a servant of them. That's what greatness looks like. Mark's account says, but they kept silent, for on the way they argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him by his hands, by his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. This is why the whole New Testament says, you want to know who the Christians are? The ones who love the brothers. To be arguing with disciples of Christ that you're better than them is to not be a servant that loves them, but to be making them an enemy. And Jesus is teaching a principle. If a brother in Christ, someone who trusts in Christ's name, if you make that person your enemy and you don't love them, you don't love me. If you don't love me, you don't love the Father. That's the link Jesus is drawing. It's not for no reason that unity, unity, unity among the brothers is the key thread throughout the New Testament. It's the thing that Paul prays most often for in the church. It's the reason why Christ died for us to take away our sins and to help us overcome our prideful heart that we might have unity together. Here's all Paul says in Philippians 2.3. It's just too good not to read this. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. How can we have this? Well, what do you mean it's ours in Christ? Now listen to this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning that for all eternity, Christ is God. He's the Creator. He's never not existed. He's always been in full glory. But Jesus willingly let go of those privileges. He didn't cease to become God, but He let go of the glory 
and the privileges in the incarnation to come down and become a human being. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Remember, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the lowest. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christians, we have in Christ the power to be humble. He's given us the Holy Spirit. If Christ, the glorious one, can take the form of the servant, die a death on the cross, a death he did not deserve, and he does it willingly, there's hope that we can gain progress over our selfishness and sinful pride. That's why Paul says, have this mind which is yours in Christ. The world can't do this. The world loves and treats well those who do great things for them. Christians can love your enemies. When there's no good coming to you for it, you can love your enemies. You can be humbled to that point. So engage Christ's power and declare war on your pride and serve Him. Last point, kill your pride by unifying with your brothers in Christ. Look at Luke 9.49. Here's where there's hope. John seems to be convicted. He seems to be understanding a little bit of what Jesus is saying. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. See what happened? The twelve were like, we're the ones that have the privilege to cast out demons. We're the chosen ones of Christ. We couldn't cast out this demon here, and that guy who's not even a part of us successfully cast out a demon. Well, how did he do that? Well, evidently, he had the type of faith they didn't have at this moment. But it made, so John's thinking back and he's like, oh, I wonder if we did this wrong. Because we told him to knock it off. And he started to realize that that was pride in his heart. That was pride that was making him exclusive. Yeah, I want to serve Christ, but I only want to serve Christ. Only my church. Only my kind. And so we see that as we kill our pride, unity is possible with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's the saddest thing Not only does pride kill your faith, it just kills your relationships. You can't have Christian love 
where there's selfish pride and arrogance. The most dangerous thing in any church leadership or any leadership anywhere on the face of the earth is pride. Arrogance. Give someone some leadership authority and apart from the grace of God, watch the destruction of human pride. Ravage relationships and people. But when Jesus called his disciples. He says, I don't want you to rule like the Gentiles. They lord their authority over them. I want you to serve like I serve. The ones who are great in the kingdom of heaven are the ones who become the least. So the charge this morning is, the plea is kill your pride for it's the enemy of your faith Your weapon is the gospel. You look at your Savior. You look at His humility. You look at His love for you. And you let the conviction of the gospel humble you. And you ask God, show me how my selfishness and pride makes me a miserable person to live with in my family. How it harms the church body. And how it kills my faith and trust in God. My prayer is is that you join with your proud pastor in the battle against the thing that ravages our faith and our relationships. And it's our sin which is driven by pride. And yet, passages like this expose it and show us the hope that we have in Christ. My prayer is that all of you would know and and trust in Christ. That you would not only know in your head, but your heart would be so convicted that you want to repent. You, You see the ugliness of thinking, God will receive me because I'm good enough. And you'll repent of even your good works that you thought would save you. And you humble yourself and you believe Jesus when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so then you act and you cling and you throw yourself on Christ and say, he is my life. He is my Lord. He is my only hope. I invite you this morning to trust him. It's God's way of showing his love for the world, showing his humility and his kindness as he extends this grace to you. The sad thing is, the majority of the world hears the gospel, gets angry because it challenges their pride and rejects the offer. My prayer is, is that God's word has cut in and overcomes that rebellion supernaturally so that you happily throw yourself on Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace in Christ. God, we confess that left to our own, we will make a ruin of our relationships and our lives. 
Yet, Lord, we have hope because of your word, because of our great Lord and Savior, and the spirit that dwells in all of us who believe. So God, I ask that you would convict us this morning. And as we're convicted, we would look to our great Savior and find joy in remembering that our salvation is not based on our works, but on His righteousness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.